0: Every morning, every Sabbath morning, we're going to take a few moments and answer two or three questions. Uh, This is a feature now of our program. Here is the first one. How does God feel about astrologists and psychics, those able to see the past and the future? Let me quickly show you a text on this. Would you come to the book of Isaiah? You'll just have to be patient with me. I've got to find this passage. Here it is, here it is, Isaiah. I knew it was somewhere towards the end of Isaiah, and it's chapter 47, and verse 13 and 14. Please notice these verses that actually mention the astrologers. Verse 13, all the counsel you have received has only worn you out. Let your astrologers come forward, those stargazers who make predictions month by month. Let them save you from what is coming upon you. Surely they are like stubble. The fire will burn them up. They cannot even save themselves from the power of the flame. Here are no coals to warm anyone. Here is no fire to sit by. My friend, I would not like to be a person practicing astrology and read this text, would you? The Bible says that astrology is a part of the world of the occult, and the Bible says it's a part of spiritism, and the Bible says it is under the curse of Almighty God. These are the words of Scripture. A person who gets tied up with astrology will soon move closer and closer into the dreadful world of the occult. The Bible says have nothing to do with it. It's very plain. Question two. When the Bible talks about the law, such as the civil law, the ceremonial law, etc., does the original language use different words to differentiate between what law is being discussed? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, The word for law in the Old Testament, which is written in Hebrew, as you all know, is Torah. And the word for law in the New Testament, which is written in Greek, is nomos. And... uh, These words are just like our words today, law or commandments. You've got to go to the context to see what it's talking about. But the context of Scripture makes it very, very plain. For instance, when the Bible in the book of Galatians talks about the law, it is not referring specifically or particularly to the moral law, even though this is included because a person cannot even be saved by keeping the moral law. But the bone of contention in the book of Galatians, the law there, is the law of circumcision. The law that was done away with when the children of Israel turned away from the Messiah. So the word law is the same word in the ancient languages, but it is shown to be a certain law by the context of Scripture. And as you've heard me say now probably a million times, a text without a context is a pretext. So you always have to get the context. Matthew 5, verse 6 says, this is the third question, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who are the people who are hungry, and why do they hunger for righteousness? George, it's an excellent question because George has put in the question. The Bible says that before you can go up, you've got to go down. The Bible says the first are going to be last, and the last are going to be first. And the Bible says that the people who are going to be filled are people who are very hungry. It's talking about people who hunger for righteousness, who sense their need. This is why Jesus found it so very hard to save lots of church people, the Pharisees in particular, because they thought they were pretty good and they felt they had no need. But Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness this is a person who knows that in himself he's got nothing a person who knows that he's a sinner a person who knows that he's falling short of the glory of god right now a person knows he has not only sinned in the past but everything he does now is imperfect and therefore he knows that he cannot in himself come and stand before the holy law of god and this is a person who feels well i'm just not good enough And that person comes to God and he says, God, I'm not good enough. And God says, you're the very person I can use. You're the very person I can save. The person who goes down and realizes his own sin and his own worthlessness is the person who is going to be filled with the righteousness of God. So send your questions to me, John Carter, Post Office Box, 1900, Thousand Oaks, California. 91358 Today we want to welcome every person to our meeting because we have a great message for you. The topic is America in Bible prophecy and the coming world boycott when no man can buy or sell. It is predicted, listen carefully, it is predicted in Bible prophecy that in the last days a great religious dictatorship is going to arise. And this great religious dictatorship is going to take hold of the power of the state. And then this amalgamation is going to enforce religious laws and persecute those who refuse to bow the knee and conform. We're going to answer the question today, what will be the fate of those who resist? What will be the fate of those who resist, and what will be the fate of those who conform? And could all of this happen soon, and could it happen here in the land of the free and the land of the brave? The United States of America is described in Bible prophecy. Not every nation gets its name in Bible prophecy. We will discover today that the United States of America was raised up by God to fulfill a holy purpose. But before we show you the prophecy about the USA in Bible prophecy, I want you to notice the story of conflict and triumph as described in the word of God in Revelation chapter 12. And I'd like you please to take your Bible. And turn to Revelation chapter 12, where we have the story of conflict and triumph. This chapter is about the maiden, the moonlight, and the monster. Revelation 12, verses 1 to 6. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days." As most of you will know, all of you who have come to my meetings, in Bible prophecy, a woman symbolizes the true church of the living God. And when we say God's church, I want you to notice this, my friend. We are not talking about a building. This building is not the church. We're not talking about an office we're not talking about a bureaucracy. We're not talking about an institution. We're talking about men and women, boys and girls who are true to God. They constitute in Bible prophecy, the woman or the true church. And the Bible tells us here that as Jesus was about to come into the world, because he is the male child who was caught up to God, the great red dragon, Pagan Rome, Satan working through pagan Rome, stands in front of the woman, the church, to kill Jesus. But Jesus is delivered. And then the dragon, Satan, turns all his wrath and his hatred and his venom against the church. And the Bible says that the true church of the living God flees into the desert, into a place of obscurity. Into the wilderness for 1,260 days. We believe for a period of more than a thousand years. Because in Bible prophecy a day symbolizes a year. So this chapter talks about the church that is persecuted for the word of God. Would you please notice verse 13 and 14 of this same chapter. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. And so this is a picture of the true church of God being persecuted by the Antichrist. We will see by the Antichrist Church. Before a person can understand the role of America in these last days, one must have an understanding, at least some understanding, of the Dark Ages. I want you to come now to Revelation chapter 13 and verses 5 and onwards where another power is introduced. This is the beast power or the great Antichrist. The Bible says, verse 5, Revelation 13, The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months, the same time period as the 1260 days. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the the saints and to conquer them and he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. There was a time not so many years ago when in Europe and other parts of the world it was a crime to own the Bible. It was a crime to think differently to the established religion. It was a crime to read The Bible. It was a crime to believe that one was saved by grace alone through faith alone. This was a terrible time. History tells me about a time in the Dark Ages when the church was wedded to the state and enforced religious laws. And any person who refused to conform was persecuted by the great church this is called by historians the dark ages i have a book here today i'm going to read you just a little extract out of it i started reading it yesterday again but it was almost too much for me to read it's written by a man who has served his church as a roman catholic priest his name is peter de rosa the book is entitled the vicars of Christ. It is about the church in the Dark Ages. I'm going to read just a little bit out of this book. I have some other portions I thought I would read, but I considered, I thought it's too strong. It's too too horrendous. I don't think I could read this to the people. The Long Reign of Terror. The Terror began in earnest with Gregory the Ninth, who ascended the papal throne in the year 1227, it is the duty of every Catholic, he said, to persecute heretics. Emperor Frederick, an unbeliever, became the ferocious advocate of orthodoxy to please the Pope. Gregory approved all his anti-heretical legislation, adding cruel touches of his own. In the year 1232, he made his decisive move. He published a bull, that's a decree, establishing the Inquisition. Heretics, that is all opposed to any papal pronouncements, were to be handed over to the civil authorities for burning. If they repented, they were to be imprisoned for life. No pope ever took up the torch of terror with more enthusiasm. To the medieval Inquisition, everything was permitted. The Dominican inquisitors, being the pope's appointees, were subject to no one but God and his holiness. They were outside the jurisdiction of bishops and of civil law. Their guiding principle was better for a hundred innocent people to die than for one heretic to go free. By papal command, they were explicitly forbidden to have mercy on their victims. Pity was unchristian. Where heresy was concerned. Like the Nazi SS in the 20th century, they were able to torture and destroy with a quiet mind because their superior officer, in this case the Pope, assured them that heretics were a dirty, diseased and contagious foe that must be purged at all costs and by all means. Torture was freely used. Only a hundred years ago There was on display in the Pope's house on the corner the black book, or Libro Nero, for the guidance of inquisitors. This manuscript in folio form was the charge of the Grand Inquisitor. Its popular name was the Book of the Dead. This in part is what is said. Remember, this was said by the church that claimed to be the Bride of the Lamb. Either the person confesses and he is proved guilty from his own confession, or he does not confess and is equally guilty on the evidence of witnesses. If a person confesses the whole of what he is accused of, he is unquestionably guilty of the whole. But if he confesses only a part, he ought still to be regarded as guilty of the whole, since what he has confessed proves him to be capable of guilt as to the other points of the accusation. Bodily torture. Bodily torture has ever been found the most salutary and efficient means of leading to spiritual repentance. Therefore, the choice of the most befitting mode of torture is left to the judge of the Inquisition, who determines according to the age, the sex, and the constitution of the party. If notwithstanding all the means employed, the unfortunate wretch still denies his guilt, he is to be considered as a victim of the devil. And as such deserves no compassion from the servants of God, nor the pity and indulgence of Holy Mother Church. He is a son of perdition. Let him perish among the damned. And then I turn over the page and I read there of a beautiful Spanish woman who had just given birth to a little baby. An earnest Roman Roman Catholic, a member of the church. But she didn't like eating pork she found it bad she didn't like the taste so they said she's a heretic the girl was taken before the inquisition stripped naked before the leaders of the church naked and then she was garroted and tortured then her throat was opened and water the water treatment continued so that her lungs would fill with water she said tell me my crime and in the name of god i'll confess it you tell us what it is. I do not know, but just tell me I'm guilty. Have mercy. We are here to save your soul. So there was a time when the light of truth almost went out in this world. Do you know how many people died at the hands of this church? When the church was joined to the state and passed religious laws, conservative historians say between 50 million and 100 million roman catholic women men boys and girls jews muslims and protestants millions of innocent people perished in this bloody holocaust i will never forget my visit to northern italy i went to torino then i went out to the waldensian valleys and walked around and as a student of history As I walked beside the Angrogna River, that means the Valley of Groans, I could hear the screams of the innocent victims on the racks. I could hear the cries of people. And all this was described before before it happened in the Word of God. Sir Samuel Morland was sent by Cromwell over to the Waldensian Valleys after one massacre. And he came back and reported to Parliament. You'll be amazed to know that when he reported to that Puritan parliament, because they were mainly Puritans, he spoke to the crowd of distinguished Englishmen from Revelation chapter 12. And he gave you a talk similar to what I'm giving today. He based his remarks on the church in the wilderness. How do you think it would go over in Congress today? How many would understand these things? And when he came back and gave this report, there in England was the blind poet, John Milton, who was Secretary of State under Cromwell. He wrote these words, and I say them to you. Avenge O Lord, thy slaughtered saints whose bones lie scattered on the alpine mountain cold. Even them who kept thy truth so pure of old when all our fathers worshiped stocks and stones. Forget not. In thy book record their groans who were thy sheep and in their ancient folds, slain by the bloody Piedmontese that roll mother with infant down the rocks their moans the veils redoubled to the hills and they to heaven their martyred blood and ashes sow o'er all the Italian fields where still doth sway the triple tyrant that from these may grow A hundredfold, who having learnt thy way, early may fly the Babylonian woe. Thus the prophecy was fulfilled. But darkness, the darkness of this dreadful midnight, this darkness of hell, this darkness of church and state, was to give way to a new day of liberty. America was raised up by God to provide sanctuary for the persecuted of the world. No country has a more noble destiny than does America. Let me now share with you some church history. You need to know some church history. Let me give it to you. In 1517, there was an earnest Roman Catholic priest in Germany. His name was Martin Luther. He was a priest and a professor at a university. He challenged another Roman Catholic priest, Johann Tetzel, to debate 95 questions concerning the forgiveness of sins, faith, and good works. And Tetzel refused. But Martin Luther went to the castle church in Wittenberg and there he nailed up his 95 theses and soon it was the talk of Wittenberg, soon it was the talk of Germany, and soon it was the talk of the world. The fire was started. Over in England, there was a man by the name of King Henry VIII. Who hated Martin Luther? He was a zealous Roman Catholic. But then he got tired of his wife. In 1533, he wanted to divorce Catherine because she'd only bore him one child, and the child was a girl. And he wanted a son, and the little girl's name was Mary. He wanted Someone who could produce a male heir. And he had his eye on one of the girls in his court, and her name was Anne Boleyn. The Pope, acting righteously, being a very moral man, denied Henry's divorce. So Henry broke with the Church of Rome, but not with the teachings of the Church of Rome. He kept the teachings, he said, we will have our own church. Queen Anne gave birth to a child, a girl, and she was christened Elizabeth. But she did not produce the expected male offspring. He didn't divorce her, however, he simply had her beheaded. And after he was free to remarry, because how could he marry when he was married, he married Jane Seymour. And fortunately for her, she produced a son, and his name was Edward. As the years rolled by, the king died and Edward became king. He became king when he was just a boy. And during the time of Edward, because Edward had advisors, he was just a kid. And they advised him that the teachings of Martin Luther and the Protestant reformers were based on the word of God. And England started to move from Catholicism towards Protestantism. Edward died at the age of 16. And Mary, his half-sister, ascended the throne. She married his most Catholic majesty, Philip II of Spain. And they ruled over the land of England between the years 1553 and 1558. And she tried to bring back the Catholic religion, and a reign of terror was unleashed upon the English people. And then in 1558, the little girl who'd grown up, Elizabeth, became the queen. And during her days, the Church of England was established as the state Religion, You see, they couldn't get away from this concept of church and state, and the Church of England became the official religion of the English nation, as it is still today. But some of the Protestants were not satisfied by this change. They were glad that the church was moving away from Rome, but they said, the church is contaminated and needs to be purified. And because they wanted to purify the church they adopted and were given a special name. Do you know what the name is? The ones who wanted to purify the Church of England in the days of Queen Elizabeth were called Puritans. They were called the Puritans. Now some of these Puritans became disgruntled with the Church of England because they said reform is not going fast enough. And so they left the Church of England and they were called separatists. Amazing things happened in those days. The history of the world was at stake. In the year 1588, because Queen Elizabeth had turned away from the Catholic faith, The Spanish people said, because the Spanish people were ardent supporters of the papacy. And the Spanish people said, we must get rid of these heretics and this island of heretics once and for all. And so the Spanish collected 100 great galleons. And they sent those galleons against the British who had only some little boats. But the British took their little boats and they set some of them on fire and they sent them in among the great Spanish galleons. And then something amazing happened. A tremendous storm came. And those great Spanish galleons containing tens of thousands of soldiers were driven up the English Channel. And the British came out and fought them. And the Spanish ships came around the coast of Scotland. And they met there the tremendous seas of the North Sea. And hardly a ship got back to Spain. And with the defeat of the Spanish Armada, Spain went down as a world power, never to rise again. And England became the major world power. And England had become a Protestant nation. Now let's get back to the separatists, these Puritans who wanted to separate themselves from the church. You see, the separatists, these Puritans, wanted to separate church from state. They did not believe, you see, in religious laws. They were treated very badly because the British government considered them dangerous. The British government hanged the leaders for treason. They were a tiny fugitive sect. And then Elizabeth dies in 1603 and another king comes on the throne and his name is King James. And in the year 1611, the King James Version, as it is is called, the King James Version, as it is called, was dedicated to King James. He had nothing to do with the writing of the Scriptures, but the Bible, the Bible that has shaped our destiny and has shaped the history of the world, the King James Version was born in these days. James I, to whom the King James Version was dedicated, persecuted the separatists. And many of the separatists fled to Holland, and then they came back to England. And in 1611, 1609, they formed a religious political association because they said, we want to get out of this hellhole because we are pilgrims. And that's where America came from. 1619, they formed an association, a trading association. And in 1620, they sailed from Southampton in an old, creaky little boat that was called the Mayflower. And some months later, after a rough voyage, they landed on the coast of New England. And that, my friend... Was the birth, the real birth of America. We're here today because of the Puritans. We're here today because of the separatists. We're here today because of the pilgrims. I want you to notice now American Bible prophecy. Come to Revelation chapter 12, verse 13 and onwards. Revelation 12, verse 13 and onwards. Revelation 12, verse 13 and onwards. The Bible says when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth. The serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the tyrant. Verse 16. Now look at it, friend. Here it is, verse 16. You ready? But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. The new world was discovered. When the Bible says here, the earth, it is pointing to another power on the face of the earth. You see, the Bible says that the beast came out of the sea, representing the old world. But here we are told that the earth helps the church and the earth Opens wide her arms to the persecuted saints of God. And this describes the coming of the pilgrims to the United States of America. I thought last night of the true soul in the spirit of America. And there's one word that sums it up. Do you know what it is? One word that sums up the heart and the soul, and the breath of America. Liberty. Liberty. Freedom. This is a nation that was born to defend freedom, and freedom a religion. America recognizes that freedom is not something she can pass out. Freedom is the gift of the creator. America believes in respecting views, country, To commonly held views. This is our heritage. Now as you know. I love my beloved Roman Catholic friends. Who had nothing to do of course. With what their church did in the dark ages. They should not feel guilty about that. And Protestants too have persecuted. When they've had the opportunity. I don't believe. In all the teachings of the Catholic Church. I don't believe in the mass. I don't believe in the confessional, but I'll tell you what I do believe. I believe in defending the rights of people to worship God as their conscience tells them to. I believe in defending the right of Roman Catholics to worship God as God says. Martin Luther, after he started preaching, caused a tremendous storm And some of his followers went around the churches and they broke down the images or the statues because they said these things should not be in the church. But Martin Luther said, how dare you place your hands upon the crucifix? How dare you? This is important to a man's faith. How dare you interfere with a man's faith? You may not believe what he believes, But the principle of religious freedom says you defend the rights of those who disagree with you. That is the greatness of America. I believe in the right of every person to worship God as his conscience tells him. I believe in the right of Sunday keepers to keep Sunday, the right of Sabbath keepers to keep Sabbath, the right of Muslims to follow their religion, the right of Hindus to follow their religion. There was a black chapter in the history of America a number of years ago, I think it was during the war, involving Jehovah Witnesses, because while I disagree with almost everything they teach, I defend their rights to believe what they believe, you see. And Jehovah Witnesses would not salute the flag. Because they believe it goes against the law of God. Should I defend their beliefs? Absolutely. And their little children in the schools were harassed. Parents were thrown into prison. It was a black day in the history of this nation. Because every man has the right to worship God according to the dictates of his conscience. I don't believe personally in the Toronto Blessing. The Pentecostals are having great meetings there. They believe the Spirit of God is working there and people are falling all over the floor of the church. I don't believe God's behind it. But I believe in the right of Pentecostals to practice their faith as they believe they are to. This is the greatness of our faith and this is the heart of America. That's why America has the First Amendment that you all know of by heart, I'm sure. The Congress shall make no law as touching the establishment of a religion or forbidding the free exercise of that religion. America historically believes that the state should not interfere with the church, and at the same time, the church should not interfere. With the state. I believe, my friends, in persuasion by love, not persecution. Never, never, never coerce a person to give up his faith or to accept what you believe. He must, my friend, be motivated by the Spirit of God. You see, the Americans wrote the First Amendment, the founders of this nation wrote the First Amendment. Because they remembered the dark ages. But there's a tragedy. Nations like men have short memories. And when we forget the past, we are condemned to repeat its errors. I want you to notice a prophecy and a warning. Come here to Revelation 13 and verse 1. Revelation 13 verse 1. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. This is the great Antichrist. And verse 3 says, One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The beast, listen to me carefully, the beast, the Antichrist, the coalition of church and state, received the deadly wound through the preaching of the great Protestant reformers. This is how it happened. But the bible says this great work is going to be undone notice verse 11 now then i saw after the first beast after the dark ages then i saw another beast coming up out of the earth he had two horns like a lamb but he spoke like a dragon my friend here is another power that comes up in the last days it is not the power of the dark ages it is not a european power but it comes up it appears in the new world and this power is destined to roll back the clock notice verse 12 and onwards would you verses 12 and onwards he exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf, and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed greater miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Let's leave it there for a moment. The Bible says that in the last days in the new world, There comes a power that sets up the image of the first beast. Listen carefully to this. What is the essence of the first beast? At apostate church, joined to the state, coercing, persecuting, enforcing religious laws. What is the image? It is a copy. The image of the beast represents a union of churches with each other and then those churches reaching out and getting the power of the state all in the name of Jesus all in the name of the kingdom of God all in the name of righteousness and then enforcing religious laws and the bible tells us and we're going to read it they're going to enforce the mark of the beast please notice these words would you verse 16 he also forced everyone small and great rich and poor free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand are his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. Listen carefully to me. What is the mark of the beast? The mark of the beast is the sign of the beast's authority. It is the sign of the beast's authority. In one part of the word of God and the prophecies of Daniel, we're told that the Antichrist would change the holy law of God. And in the last days, history will be repeated, church and state will unite, and then in the name of God, with an intention to help God and to bring in the kingdom of God, they will enforce the sign of false worship, the the change of the holy commandments of God. And the Bible says he will think to change times and laws. Daniel 7, 25. The part of the law that concerns the times will be changed. And the Bible says it will be enforced. Listen to this. What is the mark of the beast? The mark of the beast is... Is submission to the laws of men when those laws are contrary to the laws of God. The mark of the beast is conformity to the teachings of the church when those teachings are opposed to the word of God. The mark of the beast is when a person says, For the sake of comfort, I will conform. And I will go the easy way. That is the mark of the beast. What lies ahead? Listen to this. There is coming a great international crisis. And for the sake of national security, it will be urged that all must unite In a grand coalition of church and state with a national day of worship. In America, then there will be a boycott. If you don't conform, you won't be able to buy or sell. And the world will be divided into two camps one large And one small, two camps, a big camp who will say, I will go the easy way. I will conform. I will do what I'm told. And a little camp of pilgrims with the true spirit of America who will say, I will not budge. I will be true to my God. The Bible says the seven last plagues are poured out upon the beast and those who get the mark of the beast. In Daniel chapter 3, don't turn to it, it's a great story. It's the story of the image of the beast. Babylon sets up an image, big statue. Everybody is told, come and worship. And the whole world, or the representatives thereof, gather on the plains of Dura. Then the music sounds. Everybody is told, fall down and worship the image of the beast. And there are three young men. And we've never forgotten their names, have we? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they say, we will not bow. And these young men are cast into the fire. But God sends down his son and he stands with them in the fire. These young men refuse to bend. They refuse to budge. They refuse to bow, and they refuse to burn. What class, I ask you, are you going to be in? Are you going to be in the class that takes the easy road and fits in with the majority? Or are you going to say, as far as truth is concerned, I will not bend, I will not budge, I will not bow, and by God's grace I will not burn. There are great days coming. The greatest conflict is ahead of the church and the world. The doomsday clock right now is pointing Seven minutes to midnight. The final scenes on the stage are set. The time, the task, and the men have met. And who can stand? A famous little American, a lady, said these words. Only those who fortified their minds with the truths of God's word will stand through the last great conflict. What should I do today? I should say, by God's grace, I'm going to follow Christ, whatever it costs me. I'm going to be true to the word of God, whatever it costs me. I'm going to follow the word of God when the word of God is contradicted by the church and everybody else. I'm going to follow the sign of God. I'm going to be true to God. I'm going to keep his commandments even though the whole world is pushing me this way. I will be God's man. I will be God's woman by God's grace. Please pray. Let's kneel down. Dear Father, what a message we have today. We thank you for this great land of America. We thank you that you raised up this great nation to help the woman, to provide a place of sanctuary for the pilgrims. We thank you, our Father, for the people who, in old Europe, chained and beaten and tortured, were true to you at the cost of their lives. We thank you for these, this noble band of martyrs. And dear Father, today come into our hearts and come into our lives and give us a little bit of their courage. Give us a little bit of their backbone. Give us a little bit of their determination. We believe, our Father, that we're entering upon a great crisis in the history of this world. Oh God, prepare us for this crisis. And today, our Father, we decide by your grace to be true to the God of heaven, whatever the cost. As we're praying with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, how many will say, by the grace of God, I'll be true to the God of heaven, whatever the cost. Lift up your hand and tell God that today. I'll be true to the God of heaven, whatever it costs me. I want God to know that I'm going to be on his side. Lift up your hand and let God know that he can depend upon you, friend, because he loves you and you can depend upon him. Dear Father, bless these upraised hands, these upraised hearts. Come into our hearts today, our Father, as we commit ourselves to you. Take our lives today. Cover us with the blood of Jesus. And dear Father, grant us with the saints of all ages a wonderful homecoming. Bless these precious people for Jesus' sake. Amen.